You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. gut right before uh like the night before a, a big holiday or a big event that that's me right now welcome back to the native plants healthy planet podcast presented by pinelands nursery i am fran chismar i'm tom knezic and uh fran i feel that way too when we started this was one of our goals and we're achieving one of our goals right now yeah so but because of that i gotta really keep you on topic today we can't we can't wander off. We can't go on these long like Fran rambles tangents. about yeah, Fran tangents about cheese steaks or pizza. We got to keep it on on plants. All right, I I completely agree. Completely agree. So, I thought I'd mention my new guilty Netflix pleasure. But you can't. But only Not. because I'm going to mention mine, <laughs> <laughs> and because it, it really it kind of ties into a little right. bit today. Awesome. Um, I've been watching on Netflix a, a show called Somebody Feed Phil. And it's actually, I don't remember the guy's last name. His name's Phil. He's the writer of Every, Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, if you're looking for something that's like just really feel good, and there's, it's like the, the opposite of Anthony Bourdain, where he kind of like was really down and like showing the grimy part of things. Yeah. He's just so like, everything's awesome. Everything's great. He does a little dances, enjoys everything he eats. But that's kind of a digression from the main point. He was actually, one of the episodes he was, did in, was in Singapore. Okay. And I was really interested in it, not so much because of the food, but because he's showing how they designed uh, a lot of their their city to tie into nature. And uh, even like the airport, the main airport in Singapore has a giant waterfall coming through like an oculus in the ceiling. And it's like five stories of jungle that they've basically taken from the outside from around the city and brought it inside. And uh, just they've really embraced this idea of biophilic design and incorporating nature and and I've actually together. seen that on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, so. yeah, it was it was pretty cool. It's a really feel good show, but that episode in particular really had a message that was similar to ours and how we can incorporate ourselves in the nature. We're not two separate things. And and even though it's feel good, you know, and I I'd like to think that we're a feel good show, but that doesn't mean that there aren't issues that are pressing that need to get mm-hmm. taken care of or or uh, yeah. dealt with. Yeah. But with that, we want to keep this intro short, and I think we've we've done it for once. First time. <laughs> so, so we want to get into it. We have a, a guest who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him a short one anyway. The author of Nature's Best Hope, and probably one of the books that just about everyone who's listening to this has read. If you haven't read it, you need to read it, is, um, is Bringing Nature Home, Dr. Doug Talamy. Welcome. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Great. Great to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on with us. We really appreciate your time. You know, one sure, of the no problem. One of the things I thought of immediately uh, once I knew that you were going to come on with us, you know, and and I really feel that that you need no introduction and your work needs no introduction, especially bringing nature home. Which to us, being in the industry, we thought that book was revolutionary because it it. It put everything in such a way that it was so understandable, not just mm-hmm. for people in the in- – it made people in the industry think differently, but it related to the average person that maybe was new to the topic. And um, 
we really saw a difference with how people, how passionate they got about this mm-hmm. cause or, or, or just taking notice to the cause. So, you know, and looking back, that was published 13 years ago. So know, yeah. knowing how revolutionary to us that book was, how, how has things changed when you look back? If you could take a time machine before you publish that and then back to today, in your mind, what's changed? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you'll notice that it was it was thirteen years since I before I wrote another book. Yeah, uh, because yeah. I don't want to just write a book. I want to write a book when I have something to say. And uh, but I think the time was was right now. What has changed is the urgency for one thing. You know, we're still roaring down the road in the wrong direction, and I I can see the start of a cultural shift. Um, so you know, we we're making progress. But not fast enough. And and what we're getting now are the headlines, not from me, but from a lot of other people saying, hey, yeah, there really are issues. You know, we've got global insect decline. We've got 3 billion birds gone. We've got prediction of losing 20 million or what is it? 1 million species in the next 20 years yeah. from the, the UN and, you know, all these terrible things. And one thing that surprised me, particularly when the, when the insect apocalypse headline came out, I didn't think anybody would care about that. I thought there'd be a lot of people saying, well, good riddance. We don't need them. Yeah. But I was wrong. I got emails right away. The public is concerned. Uh, so I had already starting, started writing Nature's Best Hope. But, um, but it showed me, there, you know, bringing nature home is not enough. We need, we need more. We need – plus when, when I wrote Bringing Nature Home, we hadn't done the research yet. This was all based on, mm-hmm. on – Very uh, true. Past research and predictions, and uh, there was little doubt what I was going to find when we looked into it. But since then, we got a lot of NSF funding. We've done a lot of research. So I wanted to get that out there as well. And we've also done research tying not just this is what happens to insects, but but when you knock down the insects, this is what happens to birds. It's all tied together. So it was time for a a serious update and a serious motivational push. So that's why I wrote it. I think without – with anything that's revolutionary, there always needs to be a next step, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, that is a, a fantastic next step on on how anyone can be a part of it or how anyone can help. And and I we we've mentioned this on a few podcasts, uh, you know, before bringing nature home, were we asking the right questions, or did we even know what the questions were to ask? Mm-hmm. I always think right. of. Uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the answer forty two, and it's it's like, well, what was the question? Eh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. What you, was the question? You know, but I think your book created a lot of those right questions. Um, but even as we start to get things right and we progress towards that, you know, we even when we had Doctor Sal on, we the one thing that I took away from that was his his urgency was evident, and even on a global scale, it was we need to do something now. And even as we make all the right steps, you keep getting further complications with nature. I know in, in Bringing Nature Home, you talked about chestnut blight and Dutch Elm's disease and dogwood anthracnose. But just since then, now we've seen Asian longhorn beetle. We've seen emerald ash borer, spotted lanternfly, and, and, and so many other pressing, which, which they all seem to, to accelerate <laughs> much faster than the one previous. How, how have these new threats kind of reshaped our forests, and, and what do they mean for, for what we're trying to accomplish? Well, they're devastating our, our forests. I'm not sure that it's happening faster. We, we keep bringing things in, but if, yeah. you, if you look back 
you don't look back because you weren't born. But, you know, we wiped out the chestnut really, really fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we brought in brought in the chestnut blight, and that was the, the first time we tried mail-order catalog. So we had um, infected Japanese chestnuts, and we mailed them up and down the East Coast. So we effectively inoculate, inoculated the entire population of chestnuts within one year. Uh, so that that went fast. But we continued to do this. You know, we brought in spotted lanternfly so that we could have ornamental rocks from China. The eggs were on one of the ornamental rocks. Because, you know, we absolutely need ornamental rocks from China. There are no pretty rocks in North America. <laughs> So, you know, so that's why it keeps happening. And then people come to me and say, well, I fix it. <laughs> you yeah, know, I'll I, fix it. Yeah. One of the things we touched on in the last episode was that a lot of the times these things happen because people see a business opportunity, mm -hmm. um, not really realizing what the impacts might be to that business opportunity. And it's an right. easy, it, it might be an easy product for them to sell. This is prettier. We can put it out there and it will attract yeah. people quicker and we can sell it. But yeah. There's a big, bigger picture, and and that's that's even something. You know, I'll touch on that. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> jump all over the place, but you know, we. I, I just saw today on LinkedIn a photo from Massachusetts of of uh, the early or late 1800s dealing with gypsy moth and how devastating mm -hmm. that was. And that's obviously before our time, and and maybe you don't realize the scale in which that came through, or Japanese beetle came through when that hit. Um, but I do remember, like as a kid growing up in PA, fields of dogwoods that I don't really see anymore. Like things keep changing. Like mm -hmm. as a kid, I remember sugar maples in our area, and with climate change, we don't really see that anymore. Like plants keep right. adapting and moving. And and you mentioned even in the absence of chestnut blight, uh, tulip poplar uh, become more prevalent, but maybe they don't have the same impact. So we they we, don't. <laughs> yeah, no, and and it's. You know, Cla Claudia West, when we had her on, kept saying we need to listen to plants. We're not listening to the plants and what they're having to say. And we've even That's good. I like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's very true. And it's we've noticed um, in the nursery, just in our own seed collection, like we're having trouble collecting acorns for oak. We're not mm -hmm. seeing the 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 oaks aren't producing the same amount of, of mast, and and they have their own uh, bacterial leaf scorch and other issues. Um, you know, it is kind of published that sometimes nature has a way of saying to wildlife that it supports like, hey, I'm not going to produce any acorns because I need you to move on because I need to focus on reproducing. <laughs> like <laughs> it's plants talking. Um, how does how yeah. does what's happening? How is that affecting? We talk about the plants and uh, us, but how is that affecting our wild, our wildlife communities uh, considering nut bearing trees are becoming less and less frequent? Um, how is that well, having sure, an impact on, on all that? Directly. Remember, plants are the only things capturing the energy from the sun and turning it into food. And, and all the animals on the planet depend on that food. So you got to get it from the plants. And if the plants don't make enough food or pass it on, the animals, there's no alternative. You know, what are they, what are, they don't go to the store and, and eat something. So every time we knock down the productivity of plants by eliminating the oaks or the chestnuts or simply having fewer plants, uh, or bringing in a brand new disease and, and wiping something else out, emerald ash borer taking out our ashes, it, it devastates wildlife. There are 95 species that depend on ashes. What are they going to do when the ashes disappear? They're gone. Yeah. You know? So so yeah, it's not a not a pretty picture, and that's that's just another reason we have to we have to act now. 
and and with so many invasives, like in the Sourlands, I think they're predicting to lose ten thousand ash trees over the next ten years. You know, and those those open areas, even though there may be seed in the seed bank and 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 you're thinning the forest and other things may be there, but it also gives the opportunity for more invasives to come exactly. in as well. Exactly. Um, you know, and then with invasives, you have. You can have a rise, I would imagine, of exotic insect invasions. You know, spotted lanternfly is doing so well because they have tree of heaven. They have they have flora that they're familiar with. Um, do you think that some of these invasions are more prevalent because there's a there's flora here that they've adapted to, or do you think some of it's just lack of predators here that you I, know maybe their their natural predator isn't here, so they have no no risk? Yeah. Um, it, it's a case-by-case basis, but undoubtedly their natural predators aren't here. Mostly the parasitoids and, and uh, diseases. You know, they're left behind in China or wherever they came from, uh, and that gives them the competitive edge. The reason the gypsy moth is so devastating is because a whole suite of parasitoids uh, that keep it in check. I mean, it's an outbreak species even in Europe, but it's much more in check than it is here. Um, didn't come with it, uh, and that's true for all of them. So that's that's the problem. It's not that these are evil species. It's that we're moving them out of the, the um, ecological conditions that keep them in check where they evolved. Uh, so if we take our native species and move them someplace else, like goldenrod in Europe, is a serious invasive species. They brought it over there as an ornamental, and you know, now they're, <laughs> Europe's covered with, with uh, I think it's Solidago canadensis. Which is so, isn't surprising because you hear. Uh, I think it was actually Claudia West of the talk I went to that I didn't fall asleep in. <laughs> I was awake for. Um, but uh, I think she was saying how like some of the best American gardens you see are if you go to Europe and how they're bringing same way we bring stuff from Europe and Asia here, yeah. they're bringing yeah. stuff from abroad there as well. And, and we know enough that even things like we know our our native smooth cord grass or bay grass to the east coast is is actually mm-hmm. considered extremely aggressive if you take it to california and put it on the coast right. there it, it, it wants right. to take over or um we had marcus gray talking how in georgia they don't want asclepia syriaca because yeah. it's so aggressive that it 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 manages mm-hmm. to take over so i don't want to say invasive because it's it's native yeah. but but the you know there even region per region you have those those obstacles yeah. which which i'm sure is is difficult but um it's all true it, it, <laughs> <laughs> so we you know and I, I i mentioned before we we went on air that we kind of feel like we're preaching to the choir most of the people that are listening to this have read your book or or so forth and we're all big proponents of the message that you're spreading what what are some of the biggest obstacles that you've seen um taking this stance um do you get opposition you know as far as uh, to your theories? Are there people that disagree or, or someone saying, no, that's not the right thing? Yes, but not nearly to the degree I, where I thought there there would be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I thought that the, you know, the horticulture trade would, would uh, really be up in arms and, and squash me. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, there's actually been very little pushback from, from horticulturists. I remember early on in a, in a I gave us giving a talk at Penn State, and there was a nurseryman sitting in the front row, and his arms were full, and he's all growling. And I heard him whisper, "You're trying to put us out of business." And you know, I was I was just getting into this. I I didn't have a comeback for that until I was driving home, and I said, "Wait a minute, 
there are 126 million homes in the U.S. And if they all re-landscape, that's not going to put nurserymen out of business. It's mm-hmm. what, what I'm asking you to do is change your inventory. So he's assuming nobody's going to buy a native plant, which is not true. I mean, um, I, I, sales are, are going through the roof around the country. It's, yeah. it's simply a matter of, of realizing plants are more than decorations. Yes, they're decorations, but they do things. We've got to add the, what they do to the criteria of plants that we're using. Not only that, with climate change and with watershed management and, and all the other things that we have to do on our property, we need to use more plants. Yes. So this is not going to hurt the nursery industry. But there are a couple uh, – there's, there's – uh, uh, well, there are a few botanists, actually just one, <laughs> <laughs> who um, you know, just start questioning uh, the, the, uh, the logic behind trying to fight invasive plants because so often it seems like a losing battle. You, know, you pull them out and then they come right back or you, everybody invests a lot of money and then they come right back and – He's probably saying, well, you know, why are we doing this? But this is a botanist who has never looked at what happens to other trophic levels. There are excellent reasons why we're doing this. I have an entire entire talk about are native plants or non-native plants bad. You know? He says, oh, you're not allowed to use the word bad because that's judgmental. Well, I can measure whether it's good at something or bad at something. And if it's bad at something, enough times I call it bad. You know, it's not yeah. judgmental. It's This is this is quantitative. Um but other than that, uh, there really has, hasn't been that much pushback. And partly because people try it, it works. It's, it's, you know, it's second grade logic. Everything's got to eat. You got to give them what they eat and to say, no, you don't. You know, that's, that doesn't make sense. And people get that. So, yeah. Uh, but I did when I wrote, when I wrote Bring an Nature Home, I didn't think anybody would read it. So yeah, I was wrong about that, and that's and a it wonderful my surprise. Life, yeah, that's a wonderful <laughs> yeah. surprise. You know, it's, yeah. you know, I think. When, when you're thinking about invasives, that it's not just that the fact that they're here that it's the problem. It's That's a secondary reaction. There, there's some kind of disturbance or something going on allowing them to take over. Yes, so yes, you, you yes. really have to get to the, the root and, and ask, are you asking the right questions? Is it the invasive or is it, or is it how we're handling things? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and, and to go further with that, I finally realized it is not the presence of non-native plants that is the problem. It's the absence of native plants. Now, yeah. typically, the presence of non-native plants means there is an absence. But um, so some people say you can have both together, and if they're not invasive, spreading out and biologically polluting everything, they're right. You can do that. So there is room for compromise. But it's the absence of the powerhouse native plants that drive the food webs that run our ecosystem. That's the critical point. If you make sure they're there. Then the issues are, are not gone, but but certainly diminished. And 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 knowledge is power. You know, you mentioned about thinking maybe there would be pushback from the nursery industry, and I think you know we've talked about this before. Also, is that sometimes just people are resistant to change. It's it's not yeah. the idea; it's their mm-hmm. livelihood, and they've always sold X amount of barberry right. and X amount yeah. of burning bush. Yeah. But if we educate the public. And the public doesn't ask for those things. Eventually, that nurseryman's going to have to change anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's instead of right. an issue, right. it should be an opportunity of of how many other wonderful opportunities this is creating for everyone. And that's I yeah. just posted something on LinkedIn the other day where it's actually a comment on someone else's post talking about how how some of these nurseries are in New Jersey specifically are still lining out 
Bradford Pear. And you still see it on some design plans that they want Bradford Pear when all you have to do is look around in April and you can see how invasive it is. And it just it drives yeah. me nuts. But there must if there's demand for it, then it's our issue that we haven't done enough education on why they shouldn't be doing it or why you shouldn't put that in your design. And, and these are educated people yeah. as well. It's yeah. not as if it you know, it's sometimes I guess it could be what what they're taught at, at the university level mm-hmm. also. Um yeah. but it, you know I, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I generally don't support a lot of top-down regulation, but that is one place we need it. Yeah, yeah. Selling calorie repair should be illegal. You know, if, if we if we don't have the information or logic or or, or morality or ethics to say, uh, no, I'm not going to destroy all my local ecosystems. I'm not going to sell this. Then we have to regulate it, mm-hmm. and that's what the what the role of government is yeah. for to yeah. to to do something for the greater good. I think sometimes people don't see it as an issue in their area, so they don't believe that issue yeah. is real. Kind of like we've had this talk with coronavirus. People like early <laughs> yeah. on was like, well, I, I don't know anyone that has it, so I don't think right. it's that real. Right. But- <laughs> well, and I've had the actually the same talk with uh, with Brad Repair and Cal Repair and, um, and uh, Japanese Barberry in particular with certain nursery. And they're like, oh, yeah, but it's not invasive by me. So. Yeah, oh, yeah no. not by me. <laughs> yeah. But it is by not me. Yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. But, right. but this is a great segue because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is it is it time for us to finally put some of the sacred cows out to pasture, like growing invasive plants? You know, one of the things that we've discussed internally are just honeybees. Um mm-hmm. Because they're not a native bee, and what, do we really know when we, when we had Sam Drogi on, you know, one of the things that I took away from what he was saying was how little we really know just about our native bees, um, and they've really oh, yeah. only started cataloging it, cataloging it recently. So you don't even know what information you've lost. Um, yep. So yep. you know, you look at people love honey, but that's not. And, and well, really, it's, it's a yeah. little bit more than that because yeah. most of our crops are also non-native. And mm-hmm. Honeybees yeah. are really good at, <laughs> at pollinating many of them. We have underestimated how good native bees can be, but it takes different types of management because they don't forage as far. So you mm-hmm. can't have miles and miles of monoculture and expect native bees to cover it. Um, you know, put the hedgerows back the way they used to be. We could do this, uh, but... Um, I don't think you're going to get very far trying to call for the, the elimination of a honeybee. But. <laughs> no, no but, but it's, it's. But I see what you're saying. It's, I mean, it, it's yeah. a good question to ask, at least, and at least be cognizant that maybe there's an issue with honeybees. I'm well, not. I'm not. I'm not rallying against honeybees bees by any means. Just they just, do. They do compete with each other. I yeah. mean, a lot of the guy, the guy with the honey, the honeybee colonies, and I, you know, I sympathize with them because there's fewer every year. But they say, "Can I keep my bees in your field?" And you say, "Well, sure, I'm not using it." Um, well, the research is suggesting you you've just outcompeted all your native bees in that field <laughs> because <laughs> the honeybees are going to take everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's you know there are issues. Y- you know one one thing um, that tends to be a topic on the the podcast a lot is you know we're talking about a lot of effects and and i, I want to finish up with all the positive uh about that but you know we talk about forest defragmentation um a lot and how that affects uh with invasives and and everything else and even the population of uh wildlife and then you know the other thing is lack of predators which obviously you're not going to bring you're not going to reintroduce wolves back into new jersey or or or, or some of these urban mm-hmm. 
But how do you feel that has played its part? Like I know a lot of these things, that, the issues that we're up against, you, you can't go back. It's We're not going to go back to 300 years ago. Um, well, you know, we've got more bears than we used to have. Mm-hmm. The coyotes here now. We do have potential deer predators, but and there's still open season on coyotes. They they will only take you know a fall in the first week or something. But that's something. Yeah, mm-hmm. they it, should. Is it enough? They sh- no, okay. it's not enough. But it's better than nothing. And, <laughs> that's and true. The, you know the the. Uh, well, I, I can say that because a coyote got two two fawns on my property last year. And all I'm saying is, great. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, my wife, my wife doesn't allow hunters here, and we've got way too many deer. And if we can get any kind of natural control, that's the way it used to be. And but now we we still have open season on, on coyotes. You can hunt them anytime. They're considered vermin, and they're the only top predators we have in most of the country. So we're we're not following just the most basic ecological rules. You need every single trophic level action mm-hmm. active where you are. So of course we have problems. Go ahead, Tom. And, and it's a conversation we've had before with uh, with Dr. Jay Kelly about deer management, specifically in New Jersey, but more throughout the Mid Atlantic. And then we had um, Kip Adams from Quality Deer Management Association on, and um, I don't know if either of them actually said it, but one of the things that I took away from it is. And you hear a lot with the hunting community is a lot of them say, well, I'm, I'm helping because I'm thinning the deer herd, which then in, makes it a healthier deer herd because it's more balanced. But they also are very against coyotes. And like you said, there's open season on coyotes, even here in New Jersey. Um, you talk to hunters, they want to get rid of the coyotes, but the coyotes are helping. They're doing that same thing the hunters are doing. <laughs> so the hunters, yeah. effectively, they, Do they just don't want why? competition I mean, for why? a I always um, hear, oh, it's gonna, they're going to eat my cat or something. Yeah, but, it, a lot yeah. of it's, well, they're eating, what I hear is, oh, they're eating the deer, they're eating the fawns and lessening the Jeez. deer herd. But that's the goal at the same time, especially yeah. where we are in, in Burlington County, New Jersey, yeah. where we have 125 deer per square mile. And it should be 20. Right. And it, yeah, it should, yeah. <laughs> it should be 20. No, it, should, it should be 12. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's uh, there's a little bit of conflicting stuff just with the hunting community there. That's always... It irks me. I'm a part of that community, so it irks me when I hear friends and, and people I consider um, well, in that same group saying things that really don't make a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm glad you brought well, that up. It's so easy to move from logic in your argument to emotions in your argument. Mm-hmm. We yes. do that all the time. Oh, yes. and, and, you know, good people, bad people, we all do it. So you just have to be careful. Try to stick yeah. to the facts, even though it can be hard. I think we've we've become too good at a top being a top predator, and that's yeah. the, we we've done a really good job at eliminating you know early on if if weather was a problem okay we can build really good shelter yeah. if if oh, yeah. wolves are a problem we can we can eliminate that but mm-hmm. you know and then you have the cascade downward through those trophic levels right. because things are missing so it's uh, you know I kind of feel like if we're going to be the top predator we kind of have to act like the top predator in a lot of cases you know and and, and well we this is why I say we're gardening the world we have yeah. to manage we our, our footprint is everywhere so we have to manage ecosystems everywhere yeah. people say let nature take its course okay but we don't do that you know you can't yeah. you yeah. can't interfere <laughs> 95% of the time and then say let nature take its course that's what they say when we bring in these these crazy plants let nature take its course it will work it out in about 10,000 years 
uh, when you know things adapt and things go extinct and 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 we go away, that'll all be fine. But we can't wait for that. So if we're going to do these drastic, um, make these these drastic ecological perturbations, we then have to step in and manage. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to not interfere. That's just not in our nature. We're going to continue to interfere. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like hopefully we can interfere in a good way. Um, but it's it's nice that. The research is being done, and, and you realize some of this evolution that's happened where you can understand that how a monarch, like over years of time, have evolved to feed off milkweed, which I guess that, that – what were they just saying that spotted lanternfly are now oh, – They're they, attracted to milkweed, common milkweed. But it's killing them because they haven't evolved with it. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I guess that's a good, <laughs> a good interaction uh, for us right now. But – We've talked a lot of the impacts um, that have happened, and your new book approaches what the next step is. What do you think some of of the obstacles are going forward to achieve that next step? Well, you know, the next step is really activating. It's it's a it's a grassroots movement that will require a lot of people. Yeah. Um, we are we have the audacity to say that we own the earth so we i own this section of the earth okay but along with that ownership comes the responsibility of being a steward mm-hmm. for that section of the earth the fact that we we have have said well earth stewardship is just for tree huggers or it's for ecologists or conservation biologists everybody else has license to to destroy it uh-uh, that doesn't work anymore no. everybody's got got to be an earth steward particularly people who own the land so i say East of the Mississippi, 85.6% of the land is privately owned. If we all took care of just our private property, something that ought to be manageable, we're 85.6% done. So that's what the new book says. It says this is, this, is a, this is basic earth stewardship that everybody has to do. And if you don't want to do it yourself, then you have to hire somebody to do it. Right now we hire, we hire the lawn crew, the boat blow and go guys. Yeah. And, and so we're not opposed to hiring people. As a matter of fact, most people don't garden. They're too busy. They're doing this. They're doing that. So they hire somebody to take care of the earth. Okay, we just have to change the way we take care of it. You know, it's funny. We we had Benjamin vote on uh, the podcast early on, and you know he'll he'll take it one step further and say we we have to stop putting ourselves above everything and instead <laughs> be on the same level. We're no more valuable than anything else in that in that ecosystem. Which yeah. which I don't know that. It's it's a great theory, but I don't know if you could get humans as a whole to mm-hmm. take that step backwards. <laughs> well, I, I doubt it because yeah. I bet if we could get inside the head of a lion or an elephant, they think they're the only species too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're going to do everything that's best for them. It's just it's just the way we've survived this far. Um, but we're supposed to have superior intellect and be able to reason. Uh, that's another argument in in my book is that we need to do these things for us. I'm not asking us to be altruistic here, but if we want to continue on this planet, we have to change the way we manage it, or it's going to get us. So it's a selfish, it's a you know selfish perspective. Yes, it'll save many other species. It'll save functioning ecosystems. Nature will survive, and that's all great. But we need that to happen for us. And and there are countries that are doing a much better job than we are. Um, 
as far as uh, conservation goes, uh, and that's one of the things Dr. Sala talked about with with some of these nations and their waterways, just protecting you know. And sometimes we we tend to limit this conversation to land and, and right, not water, right. and water is such a huge part of that. Um, you, you know, and we this isn't a political podcast, and I don't mean this in a political way at all. But what are your thoughts about the Paris Climate uh, Accord? Uh, I know uh, Biden is saying that he would rejoin that. Um, right. If right. you know, if, if things keep rolling in his direction. Um, well, rather than talk about that specific me- mechanism, okay. What are my thoughts about about addressing climate change? Okay. Um, we better do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we better do it. If the Paris Accord is going to help us do that, then great. You know, when you get into the layers and layers of administrative um, regulations and everything, it loses me pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, to have all the nations agree on, on an approach and work together, that, that's got to be a good thing, I think. And to say, well, we're, we're going to step out and do nothing, that can't be a good thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. so, but, the, but we better do something and other than or in addition to having meetings and talking about it. You know, we've been meeting about the climate since 1992 when we refused to go to Rio for the same reason. Um, it didn't match Bush's oil uh, you know, yeah. interests. Uh, well, you know, this is this is 30 years later, and we still aren't doing anything. So, talking about it is is a necessary step, but we need real regulation. We need to we need to subsidize, um, stop subsidizing the, the the oil industry and subsidize clean energy until it gets up up and going. Um, and, and that's that's always difficult because they have deep pockets. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, we once – and I'm not going to say any names, but we once uh, – or or even the location. We once supplied uh, plants for a, a pipeline that went in. They had to do some uh, mitigation for a pipeline that went through. And, you know, it was a, it was a large contract job, and, and we had to get some money up front. And <laughs> we asked for a percentage, and they cut us a check for the entire amount. And their their comment was just make sure our weeds are ready when we ask for them. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and that, <laughs> yeah, what do you get? <laughs> you know, and it was you know we're we're grateful and thankful that those plants got planted to mitigate mm-hmm. uh, right. that opportunity. But you're dealing with 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 a entity that has such deep pockets and such an interest. It's hard to combat that. Just. Through, not everyone wants to listen to the science, mm-hmm. and that's the the hardest. You know, I'm a believer in the science, but not everyone wants. Everyone has their own personal interest, and sometimes the science doesn't back. Yeah. And before before Frank gets too far, I don't. I, I don't I'm want not getting to, any further. I don't that. want him to paint every every big no, corporation no, in a bad light because actually, in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to have uh, the, the CWRP, the, yeah, Corporate Cor- Wetland Restoration Partnership on. And there's some big, big companies who are part of this, putting a lot of money, uh, towards especially in New Jersey, it, yeah. that are yeah they're joining together to fix some of these issues, and it's organizations that you might not think would be interested in doing those kind of things. You're absolutely yeah. correct. I wasn't. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not trying to villainize or or, or paint everyone. I just in figured that it's light. a good opportunity for me yeah. to plug a future episode. That's, but no, and these are these are corporations that yeah. everyone's going to know the names oh, of yeah. these once they hear them, and when you realize the amount of great work they're doing and mm-hmm. the money and time they're putting into restoring habitat and restoring this, it's nice to know that you have those people on your side mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Well, Sin- Sinclair Lewis once said, years ago, obviously, and I'll get the quote wrong, but it was something like this, 
that uh, there is no man harder to convince of something uh, other th- no man harder than the guy who's going to lose his job if you do convince him. So, <laughs> yeah, and that, I, I, that's I, an issue. Yeah, I guess if I were in the same position, I, I would probably be having those same the same thoughts. Sure, so, sure. so, but those are just some of the the real itch or the real obstacles that we have as as we move forward and not everyone's that way you know you obviously i I just think in a lot of things it's it's really divided you know and and it's just there's so many organizations one of the things we've talked about so many organizations working towards the same goal but just taking different avenues towards it it Mm -hmm. would definitely be helpful if we all work together much like you're asking everyone to manage their own property in a way um Mm -hmm. towards that Mm -hmm. one common goal so we we noticed there is a new website that accompanies mm-hmm. the book, and we were hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Okay. Uh, it's called HomegrownNationalPark.com, and I can take practically no credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I will uh, say that was – as soon as this went live, as soon as you put it up there, we got it sent to us by at least 10 different people saying, hey, you need to check, check this out. Yeah. And we went on and it's like, wow, this is actually a really, really good idea. So sorry to oh, cut you off there. That's good. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I did, I did have the idea of Homegrown National Park years ago, and I talked about it in my talks. But first of all, I do is talk. I don't do anything. But I had, um, I remember sitting. It was sitting in my my uh, dining room early in the morning, and I can't remember why. But oh, I know why. I said, "What would happen if we cut the area of lawn in half? We got forty million acres of lawn. That gives us twenty million acres. Well, how big is twenty million acres?" So I started adding up the area of our major national parks, uh, you know, Yellowstone, Yosemite, all the Smoky Mountains, Grand Tetons, all of them, Denali, you put them together, it's still less than 20 million acres. I said, gee, we could create the biggest national park, and if we do it at home, we can call it Homegrown National Park, and that's how I thought of it. But, but it, I gave a talk last year someplace, and there was a woman, Michelle Alfandari in the audience. She's a marketer. And she said, uh, you know, you only talk to the choir. How are you going to get out beyond the choir? You need a website that's going to reach beyond the choir. And I said, yeah, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) She said, I'll do it. Wow. I said, said, okay, but you know, I really don't have time to to do this. And she said, I can't do it alone. I need you for advice, but I will take care of it. I said, who's going to pay for this? Oh, don't worry about that. You know, we'll find money. I said, oh, brother. You know, and I, I am worried about it. And, but she's so she's done it. She, she hired a, a, you know, web designer. And the big feature of this is to get on the map. There's a map of the U.S. And the object is you can say, I'm going to join Homegrown National Park. You put in your data where you are, uh, the amount of area that you're going to convert or already have. Uh, planted natives in and then you're up on the map you're a little dot you can zero in on your your county and see how it works out so that people can see the the creation of homegrown national park you can see the connectivity build uh, and she said that's going to create excitement and get people they'll want to do it just because their neighbor's doing it and everything else and I said, okay, <laughs> yeah. but I think I think she's right the map still yeah. isn't active yet people are putting in their data but it's not um, we're having like our web designer took a vacation last week and I mean, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be up real soon. I'm still concerned about how we're going to pay for everything. But, um, but she says, this is, I said, when is it going to be over? She said, when we reach our 20 million acres. I said, <laughs> I said okay. <laughs> That's a good goal. That's a yeah, good goal. There you go. So, um, 
I mean, but it's really inspirational, especially for for um, home gardeners that are just starting out and and working towards this. We get asked a lot of questions, um, and and I think Claudia West said it best: like, don't be afraid to overplant. Just plant. Plants will find a way. You know, plant more. You can't go wrong if 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 you just keep planting. And I, I've seen it on a personal level with my fiance who her her property backs up to a, a bird sanctuary and and you would see the birds from afar but it was all exotic species in her yard and over the last year we've i've slowly you know taken some of those out and put i think we put in like eight shrubs mm-hmm. and for for habitat and uh 12 herbaceous plants all native and you start seeing those birds coming in and the interactions and and the moths and the butterflies and now mm-hmm. now she's completely uh committed to going further Good. you know yeah. and that's 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 all we can ask of anyone is to give it a shot see what that interaction is it's easy you know do do, do i get raccoons in my trash yes <laughs> you know do i get do i get yeah but that's that's a function of your trash it's exactly. not a function of the native plants <laughs> that that's right that's right i i just think a lot of people think of the negativity of what what some of this brings um, instead of the positive aspects of that. Right. You know. And by the way, we were talking about coyotes. That's another important reason to have it. We've got way mm-hmm. too many, we call them mesopredators, things like possums and coons um, that, that they're devastating uh, birds and other things because typically they would have been controlled by wolves and, and coyotes and the, the topper, you know, the bigger predators that aren't here anymore. So that's one of the major benefits of having coyotes around. They keep those mesopredators down to reasonable numbers. That's a great. So, that's that's a great, uh, uh, great advantage of that. Actually, yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. another example of well, if if we aren't going to have the coyotes to do it, then we as humans have to do it. And right. there haven't been the people willing to do it. There's been a lot of will- people willing to complain about the yeah. issue because <laughs> they don't actually want to exactly. go and take yes. care of it. So. Yeah. So yeah. we're 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 extremely being in the industry. We're extremely uh, excited about the work that you're doing and that you've been doing. Uh, do you have any contemporaries doing work that you're excited about that maybe we're not aware of or, or should see the light of day that we just we don't know about it, but we should? Well, I think you do know about it. I mean, Sam Drogi's one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I talk about bees, but I'm not a bee person. You know, I get all my information from from Sam and Jared Fowler and the other people that that have been working on uh, native bees for a long time. That's a huge. He's absolutely right. Out of the four thousand species of native bees we have, we know something about just a handful of them, and um, and that's a real a real issue. So there's that's a big area of of research. I'm glad the whole country is excited about saving pollinators. They think they think the monarchs won. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> not, it's not, but that's okay. Um, so that would, you know, that I'm excited about about that push for sure. Is there? Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Go, no, no, please, please finish. No, I, I already forget what I was going to okay. say. <laughs> is, in, in your own research, is there any one finding that shocked you in what you found? Like the the one thing in your own research that you were most surprised to learn as going through this throughout the years um yeah i will say this this uh, concept of keystone species that that I, I write about the discovery that it's not just native plants it's particular native plants that are doing most of the work uh the discovery that it's it's not just insects it's caterpillars that are really driving the the food web so if you really want to keep things together you got to have a landscape that makes a lot of caterpillars 
years. Yeah. So it becomes much more specific. Um, how do you do that? Well, there's only 5% of our plants making 75% of the caterpillars or 14% of our plants making 90% of them. Wow. Which means 85% of them aren't making very many. Now, some of them are good for pollinators and we want all the diversity. That's great. But these are things that have to be in the landscape. Uh, and the degree to which the, the caterpillars and other insects that eat plants specialize has surprised me too because for for several decades people have just guessed well it's about 90 percent are specialists but they don't even know how to they're defining specialists the, the most generalized caterpillar in the country is called the stock borer and it it uses something like 123 genera of plants you say well that's a real generalist i can use a lot of things but that's still only wherever it's found. It's still only five percent of the available plants mm -hmm. that it could use, wow. which means it's still highly specialized. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when wow. you start bringing in plants from other countries, there's no way our insects can use them effectively. So it's not that what we found was a giant surprise. It's the degree to which um, these things are happening that has surprised us. And uh, before. I want to kick it back to your website because in addition to the map, there's a, also a get started tab where you have a lot of this stuff listed. Just, well, there's, you have an article, 10 things to get you started. <laughs> so, and um, changing relationship with insects, what insects and plants should you use? And so that's just a resource that's not, I'm sure those, that information's out there, but there's not a lot of places where you find it all on one, I not agree. even just one website, on one page. Um, what are some of those, you've mentioned a couple plants that are the real rock stars and keystone species uh, and insects. What are some of those plants and insects? Well, it depends on where you are, but um, the, the top one, it's, you know, it's undeniably oaks in 84% of the counties of the U.S. So wow. almost anywhere, except in the, you know, the, the, um, the upper parts of the Pacific Northwest. When you get up into the very northern places where oaks drop out and the, the conifers and willows mm -hmm. take over, then they're not keystone plants. But even in the dry areas of the Southwest, uh, oaks are ruling the day in terms of, of supporting the species that run our, our ecosystems. Um, so there you go. There's no other genus that comes close to them. It's typically, in most areas, it's typically over 500 species that of caterpillars that the oaks right. support. And, and, um, nationwide, it's 900 species, 900 species of bird food. So try to try to support the birds without that. I mean, it's it's going to be tough. And, um, in, in terms of the the insect, well, then then you know, native willows and native prunus are, are tied for second in a lot of places. It's really if you look around, it's the plants that used to dominate particular areas. As you go a little further north, the native birches are ranked very high. Mm -hmm. When you go to the dry areas of the west along the, the rivers, cottonwood, you know, the, po the populous cottonwood, mm -hmm. um, yeah. is that's definitely a keystone plant. I mean, everything's going going to that. So it depends a little bit on, on, on where you are. But um, the, the, the most important caterpillars, again, it depends on most important for for which group that's eating them but if you're talking about migrating birds and things it's it's the inchworms it's the geometridae that come out early and they um they don't have hairs they all taste good you know they're they're can, carrying more energy from plants to birds than any other thing uh and and so when we sprayed for gypsy moth back in the 70s 
there are places now people argue with me about this, but I can go to those places. That that geometric population is still knocked down. It has not mm. recovered to what it was when I was a, a, a boy. I mean, they were parachuting out of the trees. We used to we used to camp all summer long, and, and <laughs> I used to get my father. They'd parachute down his back of his shirt and everything else. I mean, <laughs> you don't you just don't see that anymore. Um, and and I'm, so we've lost three billion birds. Why? You know, you take away what they eat. Of course, I, it's I not re- the only reason. But I remember as a kid a ton of caterpillars and inchworms. Um, yeah, and I don't yeah. see and and I grew up in a suburban area, and now I live in a rural area, and I still don't see what I mm-hmm. saw as a kid, which is kind of telling. Um, the, you you mentioned some pretty specific numbers, like based on counties. How how right. did you? Go and do that research and figure all that out. That's actually pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, it's easy. I just tell tell Kimberly Shropshire, my helper, to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So, would would you find like and and while you were talking, it made me immediately appreciate even more uh, the work that like Pinelands Preservation Alliance does in preserving uh, the pine barrens with with the amount of oaks in that forest. Um, It are are those areas more rich? Because of like the amount of oaks and the amount of uh, insects it can host, it, does that make that area? I don't want to say better, uh, more well, unique. I guess. D- does it make it more productive? Yes, yeah. it okay. does. Okay, it does. Um, I mean, that's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. All right, so I I know we're 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 getting close to where we have to start wrapping up. I did get one listener message me and ask. If he could ask a question, and and it was it was, it's nothing outrageous. It's, so uh, Richard McCoy from McCoy Horticultural uh, Associates, um, he he focuses on organic land care and, and mm-hmm. like a very eco conscious uh, landscape contractor. He was wondering if you had any uh, advice for for someone like him, his company, this ecological land care contractor how they can best present the native plant philosophy to clients that maybe Boy. are unaware. And, and and we get that question a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you convince someone uh, that this you is know, the way a, to go? Yeah, it's a funny question because I think part of the problem is that the public trusts whoever they hire too much. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they say, well, my landscaper won't do that. I say, what do you mean? You're the boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You tell him what he's supposed to do. So – the, the big problem is that we don't have enough people. What's his name? Richard? Richard, yes. Richard's out there. Everybody, every place I go, people want to hire somebody who's going to do what I say, and I, I don't know who they are. So if Richard's there, I, I should get his his um, contact information because I'm trying to keep a list of people I can I can recommend. Mm-hmm. I, That's will. an empty niche out there. Yeah. You know, for every, every blow go and grow guy, whatever they are, um, you know, there's – for every ten of them, there's probably I don't know. We we are there's I can't a lot. Do my math yet. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot. He'll be. We have a tremendous need for the people that just want to hire somebody, and they don't care what the plan is. They don't care if it's native or not. They just want you to do it and make it look nice. Those are those are the Richards that we need. Yeah, and I'll even I'll even chime in on his question a little bit. And what I've found is you have to make it relatable to them. And I guess you a good salesperson. In in any yeah, ding. any whatever you're selling, whether it's widgets or landscaping, whatever, you're gonna find what the person's interested, in, and you're actually gonna do more listening than you're gonna do talking. You're not necessarily mm-hmm, selling. Mm-hmm. 
So when I've had conversations with people and we'll start talking about native plants, I kind of just play off what they've already told me about themselves and what they're interested in. And it could be even, they could be interested in scuba diving. Well, there's a way to make native plants applicable to that because native plants help clean the water and that water, even yeah, if it's up in yeah. upstate New York and then it's flowing all the way down through the Susquehanna into the Chesapeake Bay. And not that you're going to go scuba diving <laughs> off, yeah. off the coast of Maryland, but it helps clean the water. Um, it was just finding what applic- applicable to them and then make it so this is where the benefit is. It's If they don't care about birds or they don't care about insects, you're not going right. to sell them on yeah. birds and insects. Right, but, right. But, but you know what they do care about? They care about what their neighbors think. Yes. Yep. yes. So you have, you have to make sure that they're still going to fit in with the cultural mm-hmm. values of their neighborhood. Yep. You've got to use the cues for care. Um, you're just going to say, I'm going to replace this tree from China with this tree from, from uh, you know, your county. And you won't know the difference, but uh, it's going to allow a chickadee to breed in your yard. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you got nothing. Yeah. Who's yeah. going to object to that? Yeah, you know, and I, I was going to add to what both of you had said. If, if you're knowledgeable and passionate, you should be able to break down any concerns or questions mm-hmm. that your client has. So I, I think just – Which which he is. Yeah, he, he totally yeah. is. So so as long as you're you're knowledgeable – and and uh, passionate about what you do in a in a good way, not overwhelming, you know. And, and like Tom said, you read your customer. I, I think I, I think it should flow. If if there wasn't a need for it, you wouldn't be in business doing what you do. Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> well. The the other thing is, you know, be successful at it and, and get your slideshow with all your fabulous l- landscapes that you've created and show it to them. Say this this is what I can do for you. That sells, you know. People say, "Ooh, okay, I'll do that." Oh, totally, totally. So, we we just want to, I guess, wrap this up. We always end with one one important question, <laughs> and and if, and you got to really choose wisely here because a yeah. lot of people are going to go and buy this and plant. Yes, yeah. <laughs> this is probably the most impactful time that we we've asked this question: <laughs> is what your favorite native plant is. Yeah, you, you, people already know what I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say the white oak, just because it does so many, so many things. But I will qualify that and say my interests change day to day based on what it is that I just learned. So I just learned two days ago. You know, I've wondered all my life, what is pollinating witch hazel? You say you hear, you can read oh flies, and I look on there, I don't see any flies. Every once in a while, a serpent comes by, but. Uh, we'll make a long story short. It turns out it's these this group of winter moths called sallows. I've got the bicolored sallow at my house, and it's flying all over the place. And I finally say, okay, that's what's pollinating my witch hazel. I got pictures of it last night before the storm came through. So during that brief period, witch hazel was my favorite plant because it's going to provide pollen for the <laughs> – for the bicolored salad, so yeah, it changes. I, I, I think for all of us, it depends on what what you're dealing with at that present moment is your new favorite. It's, exactly, it's, it's easy to exactly. get get passionate about about a native yeah. plant that you see performing its natural function right in mm-hmm. front of you. So that's yeah. always wonderful. So, uh, but, but you're not going to have the bicolored sallow unless you have the red maples that make them so that they can pollinate mm-hmm. the witch hazel. There you go. <laughs> very, very, very true. So, you know, just to be cognizant of your time, we're, we're kind of going to end it there. We always offer a final thought. So just a way to wrap up, if, if there's anything you want to promote or, or just summarize or add anything, the floor is yours to say whatever you want, um, and it's, it's all yours. 
Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it by promoting the idea in Nature's Best Hope, and that is you are Nature's Best Hope. You meaning everybody. You know, if we decide to do the things that, that we've talked about, um, then there is a hope for nature. And whether or not we decide to do them is going to determine nature's fate. It's going to ultimately determine our own fate. Uh, that's the message that's hard enough to hard to get across. People don't they don't see themselves as an important part of conservation, but they are. They are. So that's my message. You do count, and you can make a difference. I know that's a cliche, but this time it's real. You really can. Awesome. Thank you, Tom. You want to go, or you want me to go? Yeah, I'll, I have a, a quick one. Okay. And that's we just mentioned to Rich about how you have to be a salesman well everyone listening to this is a salesman for native plants we all know and recognize how important they are so we have to sell it to our neighbors and uh and get them on board and get them on the map um and you're not going to do that by saying oh you're so stupid if you don't plant native plants <laughs> you're going to do it by kind of find out, what the, yeah, find out what they're interested in and don't, don't belittle them find out what they're interested in and then pitch it in a way that's going to be attractive to them and and we see that not being yeah. done in a lot of these native plant groups that we we yeah. talk about all the time yeah. where you have people that are interested and you can educate them and instead yeah. you know there's people that meet it with sarcasm and uh push people away yeah. you, and it's you'll be surprised by maybe what actually pushes them over that for like for me other than working in a native plant nursery it's it's plain and simple. It's I feel guilty if I'm not planting as many <laughs> plants around my garden as possible because I'm like, if I if it's grass, it's not good for anything. Yeah. If it's yeah. A, a non-native, it's not good for, and really anything still. But it's very limited. Or very little. Yeah. Well, I have access to all these plants. Why wouldn't I plant this? And maybe it doesn't look like my neighbor's landscape, but it's a. I know it's a lot better, and I yeah. feel guilty if I don't make that choice. So yeah. there's a lot of different ways that people are going to be impassioned to go and do yeah. this. If, if you plant it, you'll see the change. And and I think my final thought is very similar uh, to yours, Tom, is that everyone here that's probably listening right now, we're, you know, you're the choir. You, you've read the books. You heard the talk. You listen to us. You're on board. That group's not big enough to take this to the next step. So let's throw down the gauntlet. Let's be a, be a good sales rep. Bring in one person. Have someone listen to this that that maybe um, maybe isn't on board. Mm -hmm. uh, buy someone a plant. Buy someone a native plant yeah. to plant in their yard, just so they can see and experience what you experience. Yeah. That's a great idea for when you're when we're able to start visiting again, and and I'm sure that's going to be a big thing in the next year or two when we're able to go and visit friends um, on a regular basis. Bring a plant with you. Uh, they're not yeah, that good. housewarming yeah, present. Bring it as yeah. a housewarming present. Say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Here's a plant. That, it's that, a great gift. That circle has to get bigger. It's yeah. it's not enough with what we have. We we need a bigger circle. So so try to bring someone into that circle. Answer answer a question. Try to be a little more kind or polite when when someone has questions that maybe we think you know seem silly. Mm -hmm. uh, but we we need everyone to be on board to to take this to the next level. And I think this book is a wonderful example of yeah. of taking it to the next level. All so right. I well, that wraps it up. So thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy listening to Dr. Doug Tallamy. Make sure if you haven't purchased or even go to the library. I'm sure you can get it at the library. Too. And if, they, if the library doesn't have it, yeah. buy them a yeah. copy. Um, <laughs> make sure you, yeah. you read nature, or Bringing Nature's Home and Nature's Best Hope. Make sure you go on oh, – I don't want to screw up the website <laughs> – you know, on uh, homegrownnationalpark.com. I want to make sure it wasn't right. .org right. or .something. So yeah. homegrownnationalpark.com. Uh, get on that map. 
even if you don't have any natives yet, pledge that you're going to start planting natives, and that'll make a big difference going forward. If everyone just plant at one, if everyone just plant at one, yeah. think of the difference that would make. Yep. So, thank you everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. I would love to give a big thank you to Stephen Marr for contributing to uh, our theme music to us. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, don't forget the question and answer line. We got a few more calls that we're co- we'll cover on the next episode of the Buzz. You can call us at two one five three four six six one eight nine. I'll say it one more time: two one five three four six six one eight nine. Ask a question or leave a comment. If we pick your uh, question or comment, we'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz and answer it. And let's not forget, we still have the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Tons of new followers just uh, this past weekend, uh, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Keep the conversation going there. You can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, make sure when you listen, leave a five-star review. we got a couple more, we which is it. awesome. We we love it when we get the five-star reviews. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Um, it really just is a little bump that, that motivates us to, to keep doing these. Yes, yes. So, um, you can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Thanks again, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Uh, Dr. Tallamy, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. It. Uh, you guys are doing great work. Oh, uh, thank you. And, and thank you to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you again next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.